Today we are in Acts chapter 13. I want to draw your attention to verse 13. And uh, why don't you follow along as I read. It says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you for just this opportunity that we have to gather like this in your name. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how you use it to mold us and shape us and speak to us. And we pray, God, today that you would do that work in our lives, a lasting work. Lord, we also want to pray today for all the people over in Maui who are grieving, suffering, just horrific loss. Lord, we pray for all the relief efforts that are currently going on there, that you would just bring um, strength and that you would lead and direct. I thank you, Lord, for organizations that we partner with, like Samaritan's Purse and Lord, for the different churches there, um, Harvest and the different Calvaries there and other churches. Lord, I pray for all of those pastors that you would just be giving them great wisdom. And, and Lord, that in some way and somehow in the midst of such devastation that you could bring some beauty from these ashes. That you, Lord, could move and work and that hearts that have been so devastated would, would turn to you. Let's find hope, Lord, in, in you. Lord, we also want to pray just for this, our region uh, here in California and, and beyond that is encountering this storm that's supposed to get worse this evening. Lord, we pray for protection, safety, and wisdom. And we just thank you that we can gather like this today, um, still in the midst of this, to seek you. Lord, for those who are gathering with us online, bless them. But Lord, I pray today that your word would go forth in power and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have ever made a mistake in life, would you just raise your hand, please? Okay. (laughs) You know, I have authored two uh, different books, and of the two that I've offered, the one that has by far sold the most is, is this one, um, this little guy, and I want you to notice the title, Lessons from a Church Planter, The Things I've Learned from My Mistakes. And, um, you know, when I say that it's sold the most, I'm not talking in the thousands, but it has been deep into the hundreds. And um, there literally have been pastors and church planners all over the world who have read this book, who have emailed me and shared with me how much it blessed them and encouraged them, the, the honesty, the vulnerability, the things that they were able to learn from my mistakes in hopes that they wouldn't make those same mistakes. But it was interesting, a few years back when we were looking to see if Calvary Distribution wanted to carry the book, we met with uh, Lance, who heads up Calvary Distribution, and he was looking at the title, and he says, the things I've learned from my mistakes, and he, he said, that this is good. He said, you could really do something with this. 
He goes, you, you could be the mistake guy. <laughs> I can see it. Marriage, the things I learned from my mistakes. Parenting, the things I learned from my mistakes. And to be honest, I could write those books too because I have made a lot of mistakes in parenting, even now in grandparenting, and definitely in my marriage to my wife, Denise. In fact, there was this time years ago when Denise and I got into this just gnarly argument. And we were just both just being stubborn and, you know, neither one of us was budging. And my wife got so mad at me that she grabbed her car keys and went out the door. It was evening, went out the door, got in the car, and she drove off. Now, when she grabbed the keys and went, you know, out to her car, did I chase after her? Nope. Did I beg her not to go? Nope. Did I get behind her car and, and, and try to block her from, from going? Nope. Did I get in my car and chase after her? Nope. You know what I did? I went upstairs, got in bed, and went to sleep. <laughs> yes, it was not my finest moment. My book on how to have a successful marriage is coming out next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> It was horrible. It was a huge failure on my part. And what's really funny is Denise, this is before cell phones, okay? So this goes way back. And, and Denise, she didn't know where to go. She didn't know what to do. So she literally just drove around our neighborhood, kept circling. And every single time she came by my, our house, she was hoping that I would be out in the driveway, you know, just waiting for her to come. But I wasn't. I was upstairs in bed probably pretending really to be asleep. I had to repent of that. I had to repent of my attitude. I had to repent of my pride. And I'm thankful to say that Jesus forgave me and Denise forgave me as well. And thankfully, that huge failure on my part didn't define our relationship. We have now been married for 37 years, celebrated that last month. We are still, after 37 years, we are madly in love. And some days we are just mad and in love. But, uh, <laughs> but we, you know, are going strong. But that was probably my worst moment in our marriage. But there have been many, many others. Because you know why? My wife married a sinner. And I married a sinner as well. We have flaws, you married a sinner. You have flaws. And sometimes those flaws, they come out, don't they? But I'm so thankful that in Jesus, our failures are not final. I'm so thankful in Jesus that our failures don't have to define us. Well, here in our text, we find Barnabas and Paul and John Mark leaving the island of Cyprus after a wonderful time of ministry there. We talked about this last week, how they go to the island of Cyprus. They start on one end of it and travel all the way to the other end of it, and they go from town to town, village to village, city to city, preaching the gospel. Well, now they're leaving Paphos there on the island of Cyprus, and they're going to sail 305 miles to Perga in Pamphylia, which is modern-day Turkey. 
And I want you to notice that last phrase again in our text. It says, and John, when they get to Perga, it says, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Once they leave Cyprus, John Mark takes the first opportunity he can to bail, to quit the ministry. And it looks like this could be the end of John Mark's story, but it isn't. And if you're taking notes today, there's three things that I want you to make note of concerning the story of John Mark. We'll talk about the desertion of John Mark. We'll talk about the training of John Mark. And then we'll talk about the restoration of John Mark. Let's, cons- let's begin by considering the desertion of John Mark. As we look further into this story, we don't know why he left. We don't know why he bailed. It would seem that something happened during their time of ministry on Cyprus that made John Mark want to quit. And I understand that because ministry can be really, really hard. In fact, there was a report that was done back in 2015 by Lifeway Research, and they discovered that 80% of pastors, get this, 80% of pastors quit the ministry within five years. 80%. Because it's a challenging profession. It's hard. Barna Research did a recent uh, survey or, or recent study where the stress connected to pastoring churches in the last three years has caused 42% of people in ministry to consider quitting in the last three years. So we're not told why John bailed, but the fact that he did becomes a big deal. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Turn over to Acts chapter 15, a couple pages. In Acts chapter 15, we find this wonderful, dynamic duo of ministers, Paul and Barnabas, getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. We'll pick it up in verse 36. It says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So we see here that they want to go back and follow up on the people that they have ministered to as they have been traveling. All the churches that were planted, they're like, hey, let's go back and see how they're doing. This is a practice that we try to emulate in our mission work here at Calvary Vista, but we have it a little bit easier because we can connect with those that we have sent out. We can connect with them via email or via phone call or via Zoom. But all of our missionaries would tell you the best is when we're able to come and be there face to face. So these guys want to go back and they want to follow up with them. But notice what it says in verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined, everybody say determined, to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. The CSV version puts it even stronger when it says the one who had deserted them and had not gone with them to the work. So these two ministry partners, Paul and Barnabas, have a difference of opinion regarding bringing John Mark along on this second missionary journey. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, he's like, hey, I think we should give the young guy a second chance. 
Let's get John Mark and invite him to come with us. The word determined there means a settled desire, one born of or springing forth from reason and not emotion. The idea there is Barnabas thought this through. Barnabas thought this through. It wasn't just that John Mark was his cousin. He wasn't being driven by emotion. He, he, he thought this through. And he's like, I really, really think that this guy, we should give him a second chance. And we talked about in a previous study how Barnabas is that guy who ten, he, he saw potential in others where, where some people just saw problems. Remember Saul, Tarsus? When no one wanted to know what they could do, you know, the church was like, we don't know what to do with Saul. I mean, he's this persecutor. He's like a terrorist and he gets saved and they're like, we don't know what to do with him. And so he kind of becomes this ministry outcast and he's just living in obscurity in Tarsus. But, but Barnabas saw potential. And so when the, everything's just going off in Antioch and Barnabas needs help, he's like, I'm going to go find Saul. That's exactly what he did. So I can hear Barnabas saying, Paul, remember, remember when no one wanted anything to do with you and I went and found you, you were this, you know, ministry outcast and I came, I gave you a second chance. I really, really, I see potential in John Mark. I think we should give him a second chance. I can hear Barnabas saying something like, and and Paul, don't you know that our God is the God of the second and third and fourth and fifth chances? And Paul, think about it. You wouldn't be anywhere if I didn't give you, you know, find you and give you that second chance. Barnabas was determined. But we read in verse 38 that Paul insisted. And that's in the present imperative sense when it means that he kept on insisting. And the idea here, the word and phrase carries this idea that Paul didn't think John Mark was worthy of a second chance. You see, Paul's a go-getter. Paul is a guy who is a realist. And he knows how hard what they are doing is going to be. And he knows it's not a place for wimps. It's not a place for quitters. And Paul might have argued, we need dependable guys. And he's not a dependable guy. I think if... If Paul was alive today, he would, he'd, be, he'd get labeled. He'd get labeled by the Gen Z and millennial crowd as, as a guy who was old school, hard-nosed. They'd probably be like, Paul, you just need to chill out. So there's this contention, and notice verse 39, it says, the contention became so sharp between Paul and Barnabas that they parted from one another. Now, as we read this, I would guess that in this room, the room's divided. I think that there are some of you here that you are resonating with Paul. That you would be like, I wouldn't give him a second chance either. And maybe that's because of your upbringing. Maybe it's because of your work ethic. Maybe it's because of your personality. Or maybe it's because you have been burned one too many times by people that you've given second and third chances to that that you're just reluctant to do that anymore. So you can relate to Paul. If Paul were here, you'd be like giving him a fist bump and saying, you know, right on, bro, I'm with you. But others of you are so on board with Barnabas. 
Like Barnabas, you are an encourager. Like Barnabas, you have a gift of mercy. You are a champion of grace. And if you're honest, sometimes even to the extreme. You know, when our kids were younger, I was a lot, when it came to discipline, I was a lot more like Paul. And Denise was way more like Barnabas. She was so much more gracious, and she, the Lord really used her to to balance me out. But I could say this, in ministry, for a long time, I've been uh, way more like Barnabas, always ready to show grace and give, you know, the second and third and fourth chances. Pastor Chuck used to always say, if you're going to err, err on the side of grace. But I'll tell you, I, I, I know the turning point for me that where that took place in my heart. It was back when I was a youth pastor here at our church. So this is late 80s, early, you know, around 1990. And I had been assigned this intern. He was a full-time, on-staff intern. And this guy drove me crazy. He was this guy that was just kind of flaky. He was all over the place. Big personality, filled with a lot of zeal, but radically undisciplined. And one day, he crossed the line with our pastor, Brian. It was right before a Wednesday night service, and he did something that you just do not do with your senior pastor. And and after service, Brian came up to me and said, hey, I want you to tell him tomorrow that he's fired. And on the outside, I was like, oh. On the inside, I was like, praise the Lord, you know. (laughs) On the inside, I'm doing like praise emojis, you know. I'm just like, yes, finally. But the next day, I get a call from Pastor Brian, and he says, hey, I've been thinking, and I don't want you to tell him he's fired. And I'm like, why? (laughs) He says, you know, to be honest with you, he just reminds me a lot of myself. I was just like him when I was when I was young and I started thinking about all the people who have showed me, you know, second and third chances and I think we just need to give him another chance. And as and, and the moment that he said that, something happened in my heart. Because I started thinking about all the people that showed me second and third and fourth, you know, chances, mentors that I had that took a big risk on on me and suddenly it just changed my whole perspective. And I started looking at that guy a whole lot differently. And that was a turning point in my heart, really. Ministry-wise, becoming more like Barnabas. Well, here's what's interesting about John Mark's story. We're not told who was right and who was wrong between Barnabas and Paul. We're not told. We're not told if, if Barnabas was right for showing a lot of grace or that Paul was right for, for feeling like they couldn't depend upon um, John Mark. The Bible doesn't give us that information. All we know is that there was the contention grew and became so sharp between the two of them that it, 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 it caused Barnabas and Saul to separate. And instead of having one ministry team, now we had two teams. That Paul would take Silas and they would go off in one direction. And Barnabas, we read in verse 39, it says, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And here's where I want us to notice the the second thing today, the training, the training of John Mark. Why did they go back to Cyprus? 
Well, we saw in verse 36 that Paul said we should go back and check on, you know, those that, that we had ministered to and these churches that got planted. And so obviously God had done something in Cyprus and they were going back to check and see. And so Paul and Barnabas might have, you know, sat down and talked. Why don't you go back to Cyprus? Paul would say you're from there and you go check on them and we'll go in a, in a different direction. And so they might have agreed on that. But I want to suggest to you that there was another reason why Barnabas wanted to take Mark back to Cyprus. And the reason is this, it's because that's where the problem occurred with John Mark. That's where whatever caused him to want to bail and leave the ministry, it happened there. And Barnabas is wise enough to know that if John Mark is going to become the man that God wants him to be, he has to face those giants that he was so prone to run from. And God does the same thing in our lives. You see, God's goal for each one of us, we find it in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where Paul writes this, that God has predestined us to be conformed into the image of his own dear son. I like to say that's God's end game. For each one of us, that's his end game. His end game, his goal is to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus. And that's a process, right? That doesn't just happen overnight, but that's what God is seeking to do in each one of our lives. Know this, God's goal for you is not to make you a better version of yourself. No, his goal for you is to make you more like Jesus. And we have this promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How wonderful is that? God has started this good work of transformation in your life to make you more like Jesus. And Paul says you can count on it that he's going to complete it, that he's going to bring that work to fruition. But know this, sometimes God will allow us to go through uncomfortable situations. Sometimes God will allow us to go through situations that stretch us, that take us out of our comfort zones. It's a part of the training process. It's part of what God does to build up our spiritual muscles, to make us more spiritually flexible, But sometimes when we get in those hard situations, we want to do what John Mark did. We want to run. We want to bail. We want to quit. We want to run from that adversity. But because our God is a good, good father who loves us and is committed to doing this work that he's begun in our hearts, when we bail, when we run, this is what we can count on is after some time, God will take us back to that situation where we failed. It may not be the same situation, but it will be a situation that is similar in scope, and he'll bring you back to that. And the reason why is because God knows if you're ever going to grow in that area, you've got to face that giant. You've got to face that difficulty. If you're going to develop that spiritual muscle or if you're going, you're going to have to work through that pain, work through that difficulty. Think of it this way. I have a friend who owns a gym here in town. And after both of my hip surgeries, he approached me and said, hey, I want to help you. 
I want to make sure my pastor is in good health, and so I want to help you in your recovery, so I'm going to set you up, and I'll pay for it with a, with a trainer to help me recover. And he's continued to, to do that. And so I meet right now with this you know, really great guy. His name is Sean, and Sean will push me. He'll, he'll push me to do things that I never thought that I could do. And sometimes, you know, that what the trainer does when he wants you to do an exercise is he'll demonstrate it first. And so Sean, who's this former wrestler, he's about 30 years old. I'm almost 60. I've had two hip replacements. You know, he'll, he'll go to demonstrate. He's super flexible from being a wrestler. He'll go to demonstrate. And I'll just look at him like, dude, you're crazy. I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to do that. He'll be like, come on, just try. And he'll push me. And sometimes I'll surprise myself, like, wow, I didn't think I could do that. And, and I'll push myself. Other times, though, I'll find myself where I, I just, I can't do it. And I'll say, okay, okay, we'll, we'll modify, let's do this. But a couple of weeks later, he'll bring me back to that exercise that I couldn't do. And he says, let's try this again. And sometimes I'm able to do it. But you see, he does that because he knows that if I'm going to completely heal, if I'm going to completely the work that needs to be done, I've got to work through the pain and the difficulty. Well, God's the same way. He loves you and he's so committed to you that he brings you back to a situation that is like the one that you failed in or ran from so that you can learn and grow and so that spiritual muscle can be developed and strengthened in your life. God wants you to face it. He wants you to grow in it. He wants you to move through it. He wants you to understand and see that the trial is a part of your spiritual development, so don't run. Sometimes I'll talk with people who will come to me for prayer, and they'll say, hey, I really need to pray for me. I'm having a hard time at my job. I just work for this toxic boss, or I work in this toxic situation, it's really, really difficult, and, and I'll pray for them. And sometimes they'll come to me later and say, you know what, I just had to leave. I had to find a, a new job, and I'm like, you know, that probably was a smart idea. That probably was a smart thing that you did. But, but for some people, I've watched them go from two, three, four, five different jobs that they just keep quitting. And it's always the same story. It's always the same situation. And sometimes I've, I've said to that person, you know, I, I just have a thought. Have you, ever, have you ever considered maybe the problem's you? Maybe it's you. <laughs> maybe it's not all those bosses that you had. Or, or have you ever thought maybe the Lord keeps putting you in that situation because he's wanting to grow you? He's wanting to, to do something in your life, and that's why you keep finding yourself in that situation. Most of the time they don't want to hear that. But God will do that. God is committed to molding and shaping us and make us more like Jesus. And we have to understand that adversity is a part of that process. That's why James would write in James chapter 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Why rejoice? Why? Because we know that God is using that trial to make you more patient, like Jesus. 
So, don't run, don't quit, but lean in to the difficulty. And I think that might be a word for a couple of you here today, that you are in a difficult situation, you have been considering running, you've been considering fleeing, and the Lord's saying, hey, I've got you there for a reason and purpose, don't run, lean in. Let me do this work. You know, Peter would say a similar thing in his epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. You're, you're grieved. You're heavy-hearted is the idea. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter uses this analogy that most of you are familiar with. It's the analogy of the goldsmith putting the gold in the fire. And what happens is he puts the gold bar in the fire. All the impurities in that gold rise to the surface. And that's what happens to us, right? We get in the fire and our our, our flaws come to the surface. All those parts of us that still need to be transformed, they come to the surface. When we find ourselves in that difficult situation, well, what does the, what, what the goldsmith do with all those impurities? He scrapes them off and he puts the gold back into the fire. And more impurities rise up and he pulls it out and he scrapes it off. And how does that goldsmith know when that gold bar is absolutely perfectly pure is when he can see his reflection in the gold. And that's what God's doing all the time in your life, in my life, because he loves us and he's committed to make us more like Jesus. So Barnabas takes John Mark back to where he had this difficulty. Now here's what's really, really interesting. Barnabas is never heard from again in the book of Acts, Acts after verse 39 of chapter 15. The rest of the 13 chapters in the book of Acts all focus or almost entirely on Paul and his missionary journeys, which has led some people to speculate. You see, Paul was right. He was the one who was right with John Mark, and that's why the rest of the story focuses on him. Not so fast. You see, one of the things about Bible interpretation that we need to understand is that the Bible tends to focus on one thread of the story. Like, for instance, in the Old Testament, the focus is on the tribe of Judah. Because the tribe of Judah is going to lead us to Jesus. Now, if the Bible gave the same amount of print to all the other 11 tribes, your Bible would be 10 times as big, and you need a cart to bring it into church with you. That's how big it would be. So the focus in the Old Testament is primarily on the tribe of Judah because that's the tribe that's going to bring us to Jesus. And so here we see that God, God focuses in the book of Acts on Paul in the rest of the journey and the rest of the story. Why? Because Paul's going to go and plant churches all throughout the Middle East. And then God is going to tell him to write letters to those churches that he plants all over the Middle East. And those letters that he writes are going to become books in our Bible. Ephesians, 
Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These are all these different places where, where Paul went and visited and planted a church, and, and now he's writing to them. Paul would write two-thirds of the New Testament, and that was God's plan. And so that's why he's the focus. But that doesn't mean that Paul was the only one who was legit in planting churches or whom God was working through. He was also working through Barnabas as well as some others. So Barnabas doesn't show up as being linked to Paul again in the book of Acts, but guess who does show up in Paul's story? John Mark. And this is where we see the restoration of John Mark. You see, John Mark ends up having a pretty fruitful life of ministry. Let me share a couple of verses with you. In Philemon chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow, what? Laborers. My fellow laborers. Somewhere along the line, John Mark gets reconnected with Paul in his ministry journey, and Paul looks at him like, this guy, he's one of my fellow laborers. In the book of Colossians, in chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. In other words, don't treat him as an outcast. No, he's been restored. He's helping me. You welcome him. This is my favorite. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Be diligent to come to me quickly. Paul's writing to Timothy. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, and Cretans for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. And then Paul says this, get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me in the ministry. How glorious is that? This guy completely rebounds. He's completely restored to the point where even Paul is like, hey, you bring him with me. I'm here in prison. I'm at the, the end of my life. You bring him with you because he is useful to me. Even Peter would write about John Mark, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Mark wasn't Peter's biological son, but he was his son in the faith. And Peter's like, you know, my son, he's my son. He greets you. He's, he's serving with me. In fact, you may not have known this, but the book in your Bible that's called The Gospel of Mark, it was written by this exact same guy. Isn't that awesome? The quitter, the deserter, God chooses to pen a gospel of the story of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Mark is really Peter's story that was penned by this guy, his son in the faith, John Mark. And so his story reminds us, reminds us, precious church, of this, that our failures don't have to be and although there might be lifelong consequences because of our failures, we can know that in Jesus, we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, that Jesus doesn't hold our past against us. 
that he is able to restore the years, the Bible says, that the locusts have eaten. And if you've ever seen, you know, where locusts come in and they devour a farm, they leave everything barren. And sometimes that's what our sin does. That's what our failure does. It leaves everything barren. But the Bible says that God is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, to bring a crop out of barrenness. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. In Jesus, we can know that our failures do not have to define us. That's why we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't condemn us. When we confess our sin, when we repent of our sin, he forgives us. There's no condemnation. In fact, here's the difference. If you've ever wondered the difference between conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit, and condemnation, which comes from the devil, whom the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, condemnation is that voice in your head or in your heart that is always pushing you away from God. It's that voice that's always saying things like, you know, God will never forgive you of that. You've went too far. You're a lost cause. Why go to church? Why pray? Why seek God? You know, he's done with you. That's the voice of condemnation. The voice of conviction, though, is that voice that will come and say, Rob, you know, what you did, that was wrong. The way you talked to Denise, that wasn't right. You need to go and ask for forgiveness. You need to go tell her that you're sorry. You need to repent. You need to turn from that because I don't want that to cause a wedge in your relationship with Denise. And if you don't take care of it, it's not only going to cause a a relationship, a wedge in your relationship with Denise, but it's going to cause a wedge in your relationship with me because that's what sin does. So you need to turn from that. The voice of conviction is that voice that's always seeking to pull you in. Condemnation is the voice that's seeking to push you away. The voice of God, the Holy Spirit, though, is always seeking to pull you in as you deal with your sin. So know this today. If you failed, you sinned, you can be forgiven. You can be restored. Just turn to Jesus. He's ready. He's ready to forgive you. To restore you. If you don't know him, maybe you've been a prodigal son or daughter, you've went away from him, and you've been hearing that voice of condemnation that is just telling you, you can't go back. That's not true. Jesus is waiting for you today with open arms. And he wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to do that work in your life. But here's something else I want you to notice. Jesus is always eager to release us from our sin and our shame. But did you know this, that we can also release others? John Mark ends up being very, very fruitful, but I want you to note this. It all started with Barnabas going and giving him a second chance. And how freeing it must have been for John Mark to get that call from Barnabas. He might have even felt like in his own heart, I know Jesus has forgiven me, but I wonder, am I ever going to be used again? And then Barnabas calls and says, hey, I'm going back to Cyprus and I want you to come with me. How wonderful that must have been. And I wonder, is there someone in your life 
Someone that you know who is sorry for something that they have done and they have repented of that sin and that failure that they made and maybe everyone else has given up on them. Everyone else kind of keeps them at arm's distance. Maybe the Lord wants to use you to help them be restored. Maybe God wants you to be the Barnabas in their life. So as we close today, I'm going to invite the band to come back out right now. I have three questions as part of our application today. Number one is, have you been running from a situation or trial? Can I encourage you today to trust your Heavenly Father who loves you so much? Instead of running from it, lean into it. Make that decision today. Say, Lord, I'm I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Number two, have you failed? Know this, Jesus wants you to know today that your past doesn't have to define you. We have this wonderful truth found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 19. Listen closely, where John says, if we confess our sin, and the, the word confess there means to say the same thing as Jesus says about our sin. In other words, we're going to own it. We're not making excuses about it. We're not saying, well, it was her fault, or it was his fault, or I did that because. We're saying, hey, I blew it, and you own it. You say, Lord, that was sin. And first and foremost, like David, I've sinned against you. The Bible says if we confess our sin, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that glorious? That he looks at you and he's like, I see you as righteous in my eyes. You are forgiven and that sin has been forgotten. And then that leads you to be able to then for also forgive yourself, which is really important. Jesus wants to release you and you need to release yourself. And so that's the second thing. Have you failed? Know this today. Grab a hold of today. Receive today the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. And here's the third question. Is there someone in your life that you need to release from a failure? Someone that that right now, as I'm saying that, you're thinking about a certain individual. That's a part of your life who's in your sphere that, that God's saying, I want you to be the Barnabas in that guy's life, that gal's life. Give him a call today. Can I encourage you to do that? That you could be that instrument of reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now and we thank you so much for this story of John Mark, this great story of transformation and restoration. We thank you, Lord, that you are are so faithful and so committed to completing the work that you've begun in us. And so when we find ourselves in the adversity again, Lord, help us lean into it. Help us to see it, that it's part of that process. Lord, I pray for those here today that have maybe been living under that cloud of condemnation. Lord, if if they have truly repented, I pray that they would be freed today, that they would be released today, that they would know today that you love them, that you've forgiven them, and that they don't have to be, they're, they're not condemned. 
And I pray, Lord, that they would walk in that freedom. That they would yield their hearts to you. That they would receive that forgiveness. And Lord, I pray for any of us here today that right now you're working in our hearts and on our hearts because you want us to be a Barnabas in somebody's life. Lord, may we be willing to be those vessels. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord.